Uh, this morning, I'm going to steal uh, the title of my message from one of my favorite um, Getty songs. I, I don't know if you guys pay attention to who writes some of the music that we sing. Uh, you, you know the song. It's The Power of the Cross, right? The Power of the Cross. And, and one of the verses there, I think it's the first verse, remember, says, uh, Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. And, and the title of my message this morning is The Darkest Day in Human History. The darkest day in human history. Now, uh, there have been a lot of dark days or dark times in human history. Um, you could plausibly go back to even the first <laughs> uh, dark day, which we see in Genesis chapter 3, of what happened. What? Sin, right? The fall. Romans 5, 12 tells us that by one man, sin into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And he's talking about Adam in the garden. And there in Genesis, we have a pretty dark day when Adam chose to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was not supposed to eat. That was a pretty dark day. We have, uh, we have a pretty dark uh, day when God sent Noah into the ark. And it says that God closed the door. And the rains became, began to fall. And the floods rose, you know. Children, you know, songs, rains came down and the floods came up. That's a really happy way of singing a really devastating day. You think about the thousands of lives that were lost when those eight people entered the ark and the waters rose and the, and the rains came down. That's a pretty dark day. There are other dark days in history, I think, of, uh, of the children of Israel being in the land of Egypt as slaves for 400 years. And not only that is a dark day, but then you've got Moses comes by God's command and he, and, God, and, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And God sends the plagues, 10 of them, devastating. In fact, there's one point in that, uh, in that process where Pharaoh's servants are pleading with him to let the people of Israel go because the land of Egypt has been devastated by these plagues, and I think that's number eight, <laughs> if I remember correctly. So uh, that's pretty dark days in human history. Uh, if we want to move back more to our modern times, we've got, uh, uh, well, well, the time of Christ, we've got the Roman emperors. Several of them were quite cruel to those who were followers of Christ. Um, I won't go into details for the little ones here, but if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs or even some other history, you'll know some of the horrible things that were done to those who named the name of Christ. So there are some dark days even for Christians. There are some dark days in our modern history. We think of uh, the Holocaust and the thousands of lives that were lost simply because of genetics, because of hatred. We have... Now, in our times, you know, we have wars, we have natural disasters that God brings along where there's destruction and mayhem and loss of life. There's lots of days that we could look at. We've got you know, days that we remember even here in our country. We think of 9-11, and we think of all the lives that were lost there. And to us, that's a terrible, horrible day. But yet none of those days pale in comparison, all those days pale in comparison to the day that we are at in John chapter 19. Why is that? It's only one guy. It's only one person. 
hanging on a cross? Why is this the darkest day in the history of man? It's because Jesus was not just some guy. As we've been going through the book of John, we've been seeing over and over and over again Jesus Christ displaying through His power, through His miracles, Jesus Christ proclaiming through His words who He is as the Son of God, as God Himself. This was not just some ordinary thief like the other two on the cross. This was not just some guy who was, who was raising up uh, uh, anger among the people. He was, was not some guy who was trying to create a rebellion. This was God in the flesh. This was God in the flesh who had been tried, as Andy told us a couple weeks ago, tried incorrectly, inappropriately, had been lied about, had been convicted of crimes that he did not do. He had been, he'd been declared clean and righteous by Pilate. And yet, even after declaring him having no sin, Pilate then sends him to be beaten horribly. Um, I was walking through our house this, yesterday, and, uh, and I brushed by a door jam, and there was a, a little nail sticking out of the trim, um, and I just hadn't seen it, and it caught me right here, and I've got about a three-inch gap, not gap, three-inch scrape. Uh, it just, just gushed open. I mean, it was torn. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's just, just a three-inch scrape, and I'm, right now, it, it, I can still feel it. It still hurts, and that's just a little scrape. And I was thinking about that yesterday, how much, every, it seems like every time I bumped something or, you know, twisted the wrong way, or I just, just, man, that's annoying. And yet you think about the beating and the flogging that Jesus went through. That's nothing. Over and over and over again, being whipped, being torn, the crown of thorns pressed into his head. All this anguish that Christ has gone through, and here he is, the God of all the world, hanging on a cross bearing upon himself the weight of our sin. Understanding separation from God. As we come to chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 28. These are just a couple verses that Andy read last week, but I think it's good to start here. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We'll look at three, four things this morning about the death and burial of Jesus. Four points, and... and John kind of breaks it up this way anyway, so it wasn't that hard to pull out. Um, I did have to look at my thesaurus to get my C's. Um, so we've got alliteration again, for those of you who missed it last time I speak, spoke. Um, but I want to look at four things about the death and burial of Christ. Because as we look at these, I think it will again remind us of something that we've been seeing all the way through the Gospel of John, and that is the sovereignty of God. 
Jesus is in control of everything that's going on from John chapter 1 all the way through the end, including his death. Including his death. It's interesting there, he says, it says that he did what? In verse 30, he says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He proclaimed that what he had come to do was done. And then he says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. First point for those of you keeping track is that Christ's death was chosen. Christ's death was chosen. Jesus is the one who relinquished his hold on life. It was not the brutal beating. It was not the, uh, the, the dehydration. It was not the loss of blood. He gave up his life. He gave up his life. Go back to uh, John chapter 10. You know, John does a good job uh, in several places. In fact, he mentions it several times, even in chapter 19, where he'll go back and he'll say, this was done to fulfill scripture, right? Um, and he doesn't mention this here. I, I, it, and, you know, the Lord's the one that was directing John's writing here, obviously. Uh, so it's not that he's at fault for not doing this. But, but as I was reading this, I kept being reminded of John chapter 10. Go back to John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking and look down at verse number 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I gotta be careful. I'll go back and start preaching that again. Um, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. John, Jesus, way before, had already told us that it doesn't matter what anyone does, he's the one that relinquishes his life. Of course, we know that there were several times that they tried to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to, to capture him, but it wasn't the right time. And yet Jesus here on the cross in John chapter 19 says, everything that I have come to accomplish is done. It is finished. And at that perfect moment in time, he chose to relinquish his life. Jesus is in control of everything. He's in control of of even when he dies. Not only is Jesus, was Jesus' death, Christ's death chosen, but Christ's death was confirmed. Christ's death was confirmed. This is very important. And I think it's interesting, John thinks it's very important too. He, you know, he says, Jesus says, I thirst, and then, uh, and then he goes into this description of what happens to verify that Jesus has died. And it's important because this is something that's going to become a problem theologically for people in the days and weeks and years to come. 
there's going to be this concept that, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just swooned. You know, it, it was the dehydration. It was the loss of blood. It was all these other physical things that, that, you know, Jesus really wasn't completely dead when he was put in the tomb. He just, you know, he needed some time to, to get his energy back up. There's, there's false teaching out there about that. And John here is giving us information to refute that false doctrine. So let's look at John chapter 19 again, starting in verse 31. He says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with their spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. All right, let's get the picture here. The Jews know that the Sabbath is coming up. They don't want dead bodies uh, hanging around on the Sabbath. There were laws uh, in, in the Jewish law regarding the handling of dead bodies, regarding the fact that you were unclean if you had handled dead bodies. And, uh, and especially on the Sabbath day, which is a holy day, which is a day set apart for the worship of God, um, they didn't want those bodies to still be hanging there. Typically, in crucifixion, a, a person would hang on the, on the cross until they died either of dehydration or exhaustion. And so, because if, you, if you're familiar with it, their, their arms are stretched out, typically uh, out of joint because of the way that they, that they put the crosses in the ground. And they would, they would be pushing up with their feet because their arms are, are up like this, it's hard to breathe. And so they would push up with their feet. And eventually, there comes a point in time where you can't push up anymore, and which means you can't breathe anymore, which means you die. And so that was typically how it happened. But usually it would take two to three days for this process to, to go through. Now, uh, we don't know that most people were not beaten like Jesus was. Uh, the, we don't have any information about the other two that were on the cross as far as if they were beaten in any way. I assume, uh, personally, they were probably just crucified like normal. But so you've got these, these men on the cross that are possibly going to be on there for a day or two longer. And the Jews are going, uh, look, if one of those guys die you know, on the Sabbath, they're going to, you know, we're going to have to take them down. Then we're going to have to deal with the uncleanness of not being able to worship God on the Sabbath and all these different things that were part of the Jewish law and tradition. And, and so they said, look, here's the deal, Pilate. We, we need these guys gone. <laughs> so would you just break their legs? That ability to breathe, right? Just break their legs. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to talk about. Some of you are going, Ugh. <laughs> I, I would be too. So Pilate says, okay, sure. So the soldiers come by, come over here to thief number one. And uh, you know, I, I can just, my, my imagination kind of goes wild as I think through these things. But, but they come to thief number one and they break his legs. And I don't know if they stood there and watched to make sure that he died. I don't know how it worked. Um, then they come over here, maybe to thief number two, do the same thing, they break his legs. Maybe they wait for him to die, I don't know. 
And then they come to Jesus. And what does it say? It says that they saw that he was already dead. All right? There's our first thing. There's our first confirmation. These soldiers were not, you know, guys that were unfamiliar with death. All right? These are guys that were obviously very adept at causing death. Um, the Roman soldiers were some of the most vicious uh, people imaginable in the history of man. Uh, the things that they did, not just, I mean, crucifixion in and of itself is a horrible, horrible way to die. But you just look at the beating that Jesus took. I mean, that was done at the hands of the Roman soldiers. Uh, these were very cruel, vicious guys. They were no strangers to death. They knew what death looked like. And, uh, and so they came to Jesus, and we have a confirmation of the soldiers themselves as they look up there and they say, eh, this guy's already dead. All right? And then you've got one soldier over here who's like, well, let me just make sure. And so he takes a spear and he sticks it in Jesus' side. And out comes, the scripture says, blood and water. Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't know what that means. There's been a lot of uh, speculation. There has been a lot of, um, you know, different doctors over the years will kind of weigh in with possibility as to, as to why there was blood and water. I don't know. I think there's a lot of speculation. Scripture doesn't make it much more clear other than the fact that there was blood and water. And for them, that proved the point. So whatever that sign was of there being blood and water, it was proof to the soldiers who were standing there that what they observed, that Jesus Christ had died, was true. What they observed, that this man is not breathing, he's got to be dead, let's poke him in the side, blood and water, yep, he's dead. All right, so we have the soldiers confirming the death of Christ. If they didn't think he was dead, what would they have done? Broke his legs, right? So the actions of the soldiers verify or confirm that Jesus is dead. But John takes it another step further. What does he say? Let's read it again. He says in verse 35, he who, has, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Who is he talking about? Yeah, himself. John's talking about himself. John is an eyewitness of everything that's going on here. We know earlier that he was standing there with Mary, Jesus' mother. And Jesus said to John, John, behold your mother, Mary, your mother, behold your son. And so we know that John was there. John was watching this. He was taking in everything that happened. And John sitting there, standing there probably, and watching the soldiers come by to break the legs of these men. And I can just imagine what's going through his heart and his mind. I, obviously, he's, he's, he may have even heard Jesus say it, it's finished. He may have even seen and recognized for himself that Jesus was dead. And he sees all of this take place and he says, look, it's not just good enough that the soldiers say he's dead. I'm telling you as an eyewitness and my testimony is true, I am telling you the truth. Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. Why is it so important to John that he communicate the fact that Jesus actually died? Any ideas? 
You can raise your hand. Why? Yeah. To show that it was supernatural that Jesus Christ next week is going to be raised from the dead. That it was not just a swoon, that it was not just a physical thing, not just dehydration or loss of blood or some other thing that we could we can put our as a physical attribute, but rather it's the power of God to prove what John, what Jesus had said back in John chapter 10 that I lay down my life and I take it back up. That Jesus is the one in control. And John says, I can confirm that Jesus died. Jesus chose the moment and the time of his death. No one took his life from him. We saw back in the garden, he chose to go with them. They bound him. But, but he knocked him down with the words that he said, you know? So they had no power over him. And yet Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I have the power to lay it down or the authority and I have the authority to lay it, to pick it back up again. No one takes it from me. And John says, I can confirm for you that Jesus Christ died. Not just because the Roman soldiers thought that he died, but because I am speaking the truth. Why? He tells us. It's the same reason why he wrote the book. So that what? So that you might believe. John's concern from John chapter 1 to John 21 is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not died, then the resurrection means nothing. Then his sacrifice means nothing. As we're going to see kind of in the next section. It means nothing. We're here for no reason if Jesus Christ did not actually die. John says, I can confirm to you he died. Let's keep reading. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be, will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I'm going to go back and look at that first one that, that John mentions because if you, when you read through scripture and you see things like like a, a reference back to an Old Testament passage or something like that. Do you ever look it up? I hope you do, because that's part of actually studying Scripture. Don't just, don't just gloss over something that someone quotes. Dig into it. Find out why they're quoting it. And I think it's really interesting when you go back and look at why, uh, why John is quoting this. This is, uh, this is the third point. Christ's death was complete. Christ's death was complete. All right? It was complete because it fulfilled all the prophecy that it needed to. Christ's death was complete. And John here is pointing back to two different prophecies. Let's look at Exodus chapter 12. That's that first one about the broken bone that, God, that John is referencing. Exodus chapter 12. 
Anybody know what's going on here in Exodus chapter 12? The Passover, right? The first one, the original. When was that? Yeah, they're getting ready to leave Egypt. I didn't stick that example of four of the 400 years in there on accident. I'm just kidding. Yeah, they're getting ready. They're good. They're waiting for the 10th plague, right? And they're going through this process of the Passover for the first time. And Moses is giving them instruction on how they are supposed to prepare the meal and how and the things that they're supposed to do. Let's go ahead and look at verse 43. We'll take a little bit more than just the verse that's quoted. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought, bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. All right, that's the context that John is referring to. The context that John is referring to when he talks about the fact that the bones of Christ will not be broken is what? The Passover. Why did God institute the Passover? Was it just to give the Israelites something to do before they got out of the land of Egypt? What was the purpose of the Passover? It was to look forward to the ultimate Passover lamb. What were they supposed to do? And, and I, I'm not going to go into this a whole lot of detail because this is one of the, uh, the A&I questions. Um, but there were specific things about this Passover lamb that they were supposed to, they were supposed to watch for. They were supposed to, spick, to pick a specific Passover lamb that had certain attributes. And those attributes had to be met or, or it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't the right thing. It wasn't going to please God. And this Passover lamb was there to remind them, not just at that moment in time, but for years and years and years to come of what God was about to do by delivering Israel from Egypt. And it was a sign that God gave the children of Israel to look forward to the ultimate Passover lamb. Anybody remember what's going on right now in John chapter 19? Anybody find that ironic? Passover. They just ate the Passover meal. This is, a, it's a, of course, it's more than just one day. It's actually seven days uh, celebration, but you think God knew what he was doing? Here the time that they remember God's salvation from Egypt. Here the time when they had go through this process to find the right lamb, to, to prepare the lamb correctly, to do it in such a way that they follow all the rules and all the rituals that go into it, including not breaking any bones. And John is writing to these people and he says, I can confirm that Jesus Christ is dead. But here's the better part. His death is complete. 
because it even fulfills not just prophecy, but fulfills the example that God gave years and years and years before. Jesus is the perfect and the final Passover lamb. How did John the Baptist communicate who Christ was? When he walked by, he said, Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus the Passover Lamb. It's no coincidence that Christ is giving up his life at the time of Passover. It is no coincidence that Jesus Christ is fulfilling even these small details of the Passover process in the fact that he gave up his own life before the process that they would normally take to break the legs of these men. It's no coincidence. Jesus, our perfect Passover lamb, his death is complete. Not just in prophecy, but even in process. Spend some time thinking about that. We serve a great God. We serve a powerful God, a sovereign God. Christ's death is complete. He not only shows it in, in the reflection on the Passover, but uh, he mentions a, a statement in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. Uh, or I'm sorry, Numbers 9, 12 gives the same uh, instructions about the Passover. He mentions the next thing about the piercing in Zechariah, Zechariah 12, 10. If you want to turn over to that real quickly. Uh, God is, is speaking. I'll just read it if you, for sake of time. God is speaking and he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, who's speaking? God. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for any for as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John is directing our attention back to this prophecy, to this statement in Zechariah where God is speaking and God clearly states that he, as God, is the one whom they have pierced. John takes through the through the the leading of the Holy Spirit, this Old Testament prophecy who, that, that clearly shows us that again, one more time, that Jesus Christ is God through this prophecy and dovetails that back into what he's observing. Why? Why is this important to John? Because it proves once again that Jesus is who he says he is once again, so that we will believe. That's John's goal. Christ's death was chosen. His death was confirmed and his death was complete. I'm going to switch your wording just a little bit because we're going to move from death to burial. So Christ's burial, this is a fun one, was covert. Yep, I'm playing around with the words. Christ's burial was covert. 
I think it's really interesting when you, when you look at this passage. Um, I, I kept thinking back to John chapter 11. What happened in John chapter 11? Anybody know? Remember? What? Lazarus, Lazarus right? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Here's Jesus and the disciples. They come in four days late. And, uh, and you know, what's happening when they, when they come on the scene? What? They're mourning, right? There's, there's mourning, there's crying, there's wailing, there's, there's all this, you know, pomp and circumstance going on about this, this person who has died. And it's been four days. I mean, this, this grieving process, this, this uh, burial process was, was quite lengthy. <laughs> it was quite involved for the traditional normal process. I mean, that's just kind of the way that they did things back then. It was a, it was a big deal. They would, they would even hire people to come in professionally to weep at these things. I mean, a normal, a normal burial was much more involved than just, uh, you know, wrapping somebody up and putting them in the ground. I think, yeah, our, our, no matter how much you spend, I think today, I think our burials probably still pale in comparison to, uh, to what goes on at that time. But yet when you look at Christ's burial, and this is why I say it was covert, it's very much under the radar. You don't see this pomp and circumstance. You don't see all these people wailing and, and crying. Now we do know that there were other people there besides John who were there for Jesus, who were there saddened by what was happening to Jesus. We know obviously his mother was there. We know there, there was other gospels mentioned several other women that were there. So there were, there were definitely people around who would have been part of this process of grieving and mourning the loss of Jesus. But I think it's very interesting as we look at, especially John, John's uh, example or his, his testimony here of what happens. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I don't think it was covert in the fact that, you know, they were like, Dun, 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 dun. You know, they weren't like stealing anything or something like that. But it was, it was covert in the fact that it just, there, there wasn't anything big. It was, it was short. It was quick. And we're going to see that here in a second. So uh, let's look at uh, the next passage here. Oh, I'm in the wrong place. John chapter 19. Verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea... Who was, the, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And this is interesting. If you look at some of the other accounts, if I remember correctly, I think it was Matthew, um, says that Joseph came to Pilate and Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. He's like, really? He's dead? You know, and this is kind of, uh, again, goes back to the length of time that it usually took to, to crucify people. Um, and, and so he actually calls the centurion to verify that Jesus was dead. You know, John doesn't mention this, but yet another verification. Yeah, this guy's dead, right? So the centurion comes, says, yes, he's dead. And then Pilate gives the okay for Joseph to take Jesus' body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
These are Roman pounds, not, not our pounds. Think about this for a second. Who got Jesus' body? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You see these guys around very often with Jesus? Two guys who believed in Jesus, but secretly. Nicodemus, we know from John chapter 3, says that he came to Jesus by night and he was asking him, how can, how can these things be? And Jesus was talking to him and trying to help him understand that there's not just a, a, a birth physically, but a spiritual birth that must take place. And he even gives him what's going to happen when he talks about the fact that he must be lifted up. He even tells him basically that he's going to be crucified. And so here at the end of Jesus' life, we have two men who really have had no interaction with Christ publicly. There is that one part where, where Nicodemus kind of stands up for him a little bit. But um, other than that, I mean, we don't hear anything about Joseph until now because he was secretly a follower because he feared the Jews. So we have, out of all the people that you would think would come and claim the body of Christ, we have two men that we weren't even really sure until this point were followers of Christ. And these two men come and they take Jesus' body and they prepare it for burial. All the people that you would expect to be there are not there. It's interesting, if you read some of the other Gospels, you'll see that uh, the women, they, they, they knew what was happening, and they, were, they, were, uh, they actually followed them to the tomb, so they knew where the tomb was. Uh, but it doesn't look like they were part of this initial burial process. So it's just these two guys wrapping up Jesus' body with whatever, with whatever uh, Nicodemus brought, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Um, if you look in, in, in the, the next passages, it talks about spices and things, other things that the women are going to bring. Obviously, this was not something that, that, that Nicodemus was prepared for. You know, he didn't come with everything that they would normally do for the burial process. But these two men take the body of Christ and they wrap it up. And if you look at the way that John writes this out, it says in verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where they were, sorry, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, if you don't go back and read some of the other Gospels, this can seem a little odd because it almost seems like they get the body prepared and they're like, okay, we got to do something with this body because it's the day of preparation. You know, we got to get out of here. We got to get cleansed for the Sabbath. You know, we've got lots of things we need to do. Oh, look, there's a tomb. Let's just chuck it in there. I mean, if you're not careful in reading the scripture, it would be really easy to just be like, oh, well, he's just, you know, thrown into some random tune. Um, if you notice in one of the songs we sang, it says that he was laid in Joseph's tomb. All right, John doesn't tell us that. But if you look at some of the other gospels, I think Mark tells us and maybe Matthew tells us 
that the tomb was actually Joseph's tomb. This wasn't just some random tomb that they found somewhere. It was one that he had just had prepared for himself. So Joseph knew where this tomb was. He, they're probably there, and, and Joseph's like, well, you know what? We, there, there was some rush here. John mentions it, that they're, they're dealing with the day of preparation. There's, there's some urgency to get this taken care of. And so Joseph says, well, let's, let's put him in my tomb. And so they lay Jesus in this tomb, brand new tomb. And other passages tell us that, um, that Joseph actually is the one that put the stone over the entrance. But here's these two men who have very little other connection that we know of with Jesus Christ, claiming his body, preparing it for burial, burying it in a tomb that was not prepared for him. All of this happening without a whole lot of people really knowing what's going on. The Son of God, who just laid down his life for the sins of all mankind, buried in a borrowed tomb, Think about that. The king of glory, the one who Revelation tells us deserves honor and glory and power and praise and might and a lot of other things I'm probably leaving out. That one is dead, wrapped up by two virtual strangers and laid in a borrowed tomb that wasn't made for him. darkest day in human history. You know, if the story stopped there, it certainly would be a very dark day. If the story stopped there, we would even hear, as Paul tells us, we would be without hope. But thankfully, there's another chapter. There's more to the story. And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I thought of a... Uh, a song, it's an old uh, Gaither song. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you. <clears throat> but, uh, but the chorus of it, I think, it is very interesting. And, and, I, and I like the way that the chorus ends because I think it's, it's one of, if not maybe, the perfect uh, endings for this spot where Jesus has laid down his life. He's laid in a tomb. Everything is done. Everything is over. And the Passover and the Sabbath comes. And it's almost as if everything just kind of stops. <laughs> because it's almost as if he's forgotten because of the Passover or because of the Sabbath. And as I was thinking about this, this song, I thought I would just say it real quickly. It's from uh the well, song title will give it away, but it's uh, the song title is The End of the Beginning. The End of the Beginning. It says this, He was born of a virgin one holy night in a little town of Bethlehem. Angels gathered round him underneath the stars singing praises to the great I Am. He walked on the water, healed the lame, and made the blind to see again. 
And for the first time here on earth, we learned that God could be a friend. And though he never did a single thing wrong, the angry crowd chose him. And then he walked down the road and died on the cross. And that was the end of the beginning. Because it doesn't end with his death. It doesn't end with his burial. There's more to be said. It is the end of the beginning. There's just a little bit more to the Gospel of John as Jesus' death and burial, though it seemed at the time to be the end of everything they knew. It was only the beginning of a new life they could never have imagined. Not just for them, but for us. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is God. We thank you that he has given us new life because of what he has done for us on the cross. For the blood that he shed, for taking the weight of our sin upon him, for understanding what it is like to be separated from you, to bear your wrath. And because of that, he's given us his righteousness. And we can stand before you holy and perfect, not because of our works, but because of Christ. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we celebrate even this death because we know that it was not the end, but rather it was the beginning of something amazing and wonderful. Help us to remember that. Help us to be reminded of it day by day as we live that we have been saved to new life, that there is a purpose for us here on earth. I pray that we would fulfill that and that you would be glorified by it. For in Christ's name we pray, amen.